the value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. People are worried about recession, and with good reason. A range of economic forces are coming together to pose serious threats to growth. Food and energy inflation, spiking in part because of the war in Ukraine, is forcing central banks to raise interest rates. And COVID is far from over. Inflation has hit a fresh 40-year high in the United States. Consumer prices were on average 8.5% higher in March than they were at the same time one year ago. Yeah, that headline figure is the highest since December of 1981. So inflation the 12 months to April went up by 9%. The last time we saw price rises of this speed was all the way back in the early 80s, and that was coming off the back of the huge oil crisis, massive inflationary period, a period that was so serious, it really changed the way that governments and uh, central bankers thought about inflation. That's how bad it was. Food and energy prices are at historic highs around the globe, and inflation is expected to rise in the coming months. It's going to put more pressure on the Federal Reserve to get more aggressive in raising interest rates. Against this backdrop, today the FOMC raised its policy interest rate by a half percentage point. And the Bank of England is the latest regulator or central bank across the world that has raised interest rates to highest level since 2009. It is hiking interest rates by quarter point to 1%. Russia's invasion of Ukraine pushing oil prices to their highest level in like seven years. That will make everything from home heating to gasoline even more expensive. Sunflower oil sold out. The war in Ukraine is exacerbating supply problems and Germans are panic buying. Raw materials are unavailable. Supply chains don't work like they used to. Hundreds of supermarket items have become more expensive. China's biggest and wealthiest city, Shanghai, is shutting down after a resurgence of COVID cases. Have a look at this. It might explain why you are still waiting for a delivery. It is ships queuing around Shanghai, many sitting idle due to China's zero-tolerance approach to COVID, with one in ten items reportedly stuck in the country's ports. But if the factors driving rising prices are beyond the limits of policymakers' control, what happens next? In this show, we're going to speak to Keith Wade. I know this has sort of been used as a defence um, by the central banks to say, oh, well, we can't control this. No, they, can, they can't control it, but they can control the other things and they can, they'll have to squeeze those things harder to get inflation back to target. Keith is Schroeder's chief economist, and we'll be discussing what central banks' next move might be, what markets are pricing in, and ultimately, what's the probability we'll fall into a recession? But in the first part of the show, we're going to look at what the data behind the cost of living squeeze is telling us and where we are on the so-called misery index. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. I mean, we haven't seen a squeeze on living standards like this for quite some time. 
just sort of looking at, at the data when real incomes in the economy have actually fallen in the way that they are falling at the moment you've actually got to go back to sort of the second half of the 1970s when inflation was very very high um, or the early 80s when we had a really big oil shock anger and bewilderment are growing as more and more americans cope with gasoline lines and empty pumps We covered the economic crisis of the 1970s in depth in episode 148. We'll provide a link in the show notes. But in short, in the 1970s, meat prices rose 25% in one year alone and milk and dairy prices shot up almost 22%. Driven by war, loose monetary policy and energy supply problems, inflation in the 1970s topped out at 22%. And of course, at the moment, uh, an oil shock is playing a part in the squeeze on incomes at the moment. But it's broader than that because we're also seeing food prices rise and we're also seeing quite a range of goods prices rising. In the UK, according to the last reading of the Consumer Price Index, or the CPI as it's known, so that's the basket of goods policymakers use to measure the rise in inflation, just over 80% of prices were rising more than 3%. But around the globe, costs are spiralling and energy and food are two of the main issues. Energy prices in most part of the world are up more than 40%, while food prices are inflating at high single digits and low double-digit numbers. So, you know, compared to our recent history, when inflation has been around one and a half, two percent 2%, that's quite a big pickup. So households are feeling that squeeze. I have talked to the kids about inflation. They're noticing the gas prices because I always say, oh, man, I should have got gas when it was a little cheaper. And when I picked up the smaller kids and passed through there, they were like, oh, the gas went up. You should have got it this morning. I have missed meals so that the kids could eat. I wouldn't tell them, of course, because they'll try to, you know, share their food with me. We have a big family and the price of meat has gone up. But with predictions, the cost of living crisis is going to get worse. Organizers say it's now not just the next meal parents are worried about. What we've seen is that the people want to kind of not hoard, but have extra rations at home. What we've had is that the parents want more food for them, for their children, because they're always worried about what is going to come in next week. It's, it's particularly bad in the UK and the US, I would say, where inflation has risen the most. Um, so, you know, UK inflation at 9%, uh, US inflation at 8 uh, I mean, it's not far off that in Europe, just over 7 but um, it hasn't risen quite as much 
in Asia, it's a little bit lower. Um, so in China, it's actually inflation has actually stayed reasonably under control. Um, it's around about two and a half at the moment. So it's it's pretty well spread. Uh, I mean, it is a global phenomenon, no doubt. If it feels like things are bad, it's because they are. The Misery Index, which is an economic indicator that helps determine how the average citizen is doing economically and is calculated by adding the seasonally adjusted unemployment rate to the annual inflation rate, is now at its highest 20% of readings over almost 50 years. Although the Misery Index is being boosted by inflation, it's not being boosted by unemployment at the moment. Uh, nonetheless, um, you know, we are seeing consumer confidence come off. So, you know, people are anticipating uh, things getting worse from here. Small business owners aren't feeling so confident these days. Only 6% say the economy is excellent right now, while 44% say it's poor and nearly a third say it's fair. Overall confidence is still near an all-time low. Consumer confidence in the UK has fallen to its lowest in almost five decades. There's always a lag. You know, initially people carry on spending because um, they have set patterns of, of doing things. And then they realize that actually they're under pressure, their budgets are, are not keeping up. And so one of the reactions that we do see is often people, you know, sort of max out on the credit cards. Which means people are still spending. In the US, consumer spending growth has actually accelerated in the first quarter, rising at a rate of 2.7% after rising 2.5% in the previous quarter. Consumer credit is set to climb 7.9% in 2022 as credit card borrowing spikes. That's according to Ernst & Young. In the UK, credit card debt is piling up and it's costing more too. Almost £55 for every £100 held on credit cards is now incurring interest. The latest data from banking trade body UK Finance showed, which warned the worst is yet to come as families feel the effects of inflation. But Wade says we're beginning to see some signs that monetary policy is beginning to work. And when you're looking for those signs, you, you look very much towards the housing market. And uh, you know, we are seeing the effect of higher mortgage rates beginning to slow down the housing market. Uh, it's early days, but you know there's a little bit of evidence there that things are beginning to to come off. At the moment, it's interesting, retailers are, you know, trying to make cuts as they go along. They're introducing more uh, cheaper lines of products so that people can continue to spend, but they don't have to spend quite so much. But I think as we go forward and we see that hit to living standards, people will adjust their spending behavior. And I think, uh, you know, we will actually start to see much more uh, in the way of evidence of weaker uh, consumer spending coming through, particularly on retail sales. I think that will be the second sort of part to drop after the housing market slows. We're at an early stage of the slowdown is really what I'm saying, but we are seeing some of the signs that people are coming under more strain uh, in, in the data that's coming through. So with the cost of living squeeze well and truly on, can central bankers and policymakers do anything to prevent the economy coming to a juddering halt? Or have they fallen too far behind the curve? That's coming up in part two. Get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters.com or visit our website shorters.com forward slash investor download. In response to rising inflation, central banks have done what they usually do. And even as households are squeezed, the bank added to the pain by raising interest rates to 1%, the highest level in 13 years. From the standpoint of our congressional mandate to promote maximum employment and price stability, the current picture is plain to see. The labor market is extremely tight and inflation is much too high. 
Against this backdrop, today the FOMC raised its policy interest rate by a half percentage point. The Fed expected to hike rates and reduce its balance sheet aggressively over the next 18 months. Here's the outlook for the Fed from this survey. 100% chance of a 50 basis point hike will be announced tomorrow. 90% chance they do it again in June, 50 basis points. 2.7 trillion in balance sheet reduction expected over the next two years and five months. That, by the way, is six months earlier to get to that point than the previous survey. But is it much too late? I think they 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 have fallen behind the curve, but there was a lot of uncertainty. And I think central bankers felt, you know, that they didn't want to tighten too early because if they got it wrong and really crunched the economy, when, you know, you still had quite a lot of COVID around um, causing problems, you, you'd really, you know, be in for a lot of flack. COVID was and still is a major problem in many parts of the world. Cases are spiking again in the US and China continues to lock down cities, which causes more disruption to global trade. Geopolitical tensions has added another level of uncertainty. You know, I think they did delay for that reason. But of course, unfortunately, it means that inflation has become more entrenched as a result and become more of a problem. And, you know, we're working on our new forecast at the moment. And we've had to acknowledge that inflation is worse than we expected. And it's not just because of commodity prices. And because it's been left for longer, we're seeing more signs that wages are, are, are picking up as people try to compensate. So you get in the first stages of wage price spirals. So they have let it go a little bit too long. And I think, unfortunately, that means that they have to tighten more aggressively to bring inflation down. I I wouldn't use the word overreact. I think it's just uh, um, uh, what has to happen now, unfortunately. They they need to react strongly now, more strongly than they would have done before, to get inflation down. Um, Had they reacted earlier, then, you know, we might not have seen inflation rise as much or wages rise as much. And we could be looking at more like a, a, a gradual slowdown as, as the bank eases policy slowly. But I think now we're looking at something a bit more aggressive and a bit more in the way of a sharper slowdown as a result. Central bankers have been quick to blame outside influences for the cost of living crisis we're experiencing. War in Ukraine is contributing to soaring costs of commodities and lingering COVID is triggering spikes in shipping delays and ratcheting up demand for goods that are scarcely available. But Wade says he doesn't entirely buy the idea that it's outside the central banker's power to ease soaring costs. I mean, yeah, they don't they don't set oil prices or food prices. But, you know, there's a lot of um, other components in the CPI, um, you know, about sort of 85 percent of the CPI actually is not oil and food uh, in, in the UK. So what you have to do, what a central bank should be doing is targeting the rest of the basket and tightening policy and bringing inflation down to offset that. In the UK, for instance, housing and household goods services make up more than 30% of the CPI basket. Recreation and culture and transport combined make up another 22%, with restaurants and hotels making up another 9%. Wade says governments can help by taking actions that might be unpopular with voters, such as raising taxes, freezing income bans and tightening the purse strings. But there's not much else beyond that. I mean, back in the 1970s, um, they tried all kinds of income and pricing policies and, and none of them really worked. So, you know, it's, it's really down to, to the central banks to, to do the right thing. Part of that means tightening monetary conditions by reducing their balance sheets, which have bulged since the financial crisis in 2008. 
For instance, the US Federal Reserve balance sheet ballooned from just under $1 trillion in 2007 to nearly $9 trillion in 2022. So the other part of monetary tightening, of course, is the reduction balance sheets, uh, QT, quantitative tightening, uh, as it's known. So it's the reverse of quantitative easing. And this means that the central banks are now running down their balance sheets. So having bought lots of government bonds and in the US mortgage-backed securities, you know, they're now beginning to sort of effectively sell those back to the market, allow them to run off when they mature and reduce their balance sheets. So you know, that acts as a, as a form of tightening of policy um, because it means that you would tend to see uh, less liquidity being pumped into the economy. Which suppresses demand and adds more uncertainty to the outlook, which is causing turmoil in financial markets. Now we turn to Wall Street, where stocks had their worst day in nearly two years yesterday. There was a huge sell-off after major retailers announced a drop in their profits. Yeah, the hit comes after retail giants Walmart and Target reported lower-than-expected earnings, something that experts say shows inflation is impacting corporate profits, and companies are having trouble passing on those rising costs to consumers. It's painful. I mean, I'd say anybody who owns stocks today feels like they're caught in like a vortex of downward misery. We've obviously seen two major bear markets already this century uh, where the S&P fell 50% and then 56%. And I believe the signs are there again uh, that we're in the second or third inning of another one of those multi-quarter bear markets. At the time of recording, in the US, the S&P 500 was down around 20% and the tech-heavy Nasdaq down nearly 30%, marking the worst start to a year since the Great Depression in the 1930s. Most major stock markets around the world are also suffering double-digit losses. There's no doubt we are lurking in or near bear market territory, which is a fall of 20% from its most recent peak. Small tech stocks are bearing the brunt. Some are down up to 70%, reminiscent of the dot-com crash in 99. But the sell-off is broader than that. So-called defensive stocks, those that tend to do well when economic times get tough, are also being hit. The likes of consumer staples Walmart and Target are also down. Markets have not really responded very well. Uh, I mean, this is the worst kind of environment for markets in many ways because, you know, very often in the past, when you see a slowdown in economic activity, um, you know, the central bank will kind of step in and give some signals that are not going to raise interest rates as much as they would have done otherwise. So, you know, that's always seen as quite good for the for the market because it means that interest rates come down, liquidity is kept very strong. Now, this is the opposite of that, where the central banks are saying, well, actually, yes, we've got some signs of weaker growth, but we're going to need to see a lot more of those signs. And in the meantime, we're going to be raising interest rates to to get inflation down. So, you know, it's taken away what people in the markets often refer to as the Fed put when, you know, you get some bad news and the market starts to wobble and then the central bank comes in and says, oh, don't worry, we're not going to raise rates now. And then the market recovers. Now, that that sort of dynamic has been taken away by this pickup in inflation. They don't have a big problem with the stock market going down. Now, if the credit market seized up, maybe that would influence the Fed more than the stock market, Steve. But what about this idea that Minard uh, puts forth, uh, that they are perhaps too aggressive in the face of what is an undeniably slowing economy? So, 
you know, markets have not reacted well, and we've just had um, seven consecutive weekly falls in the uh, S&P 500, which we haven't seen uh, for a very long time. I think it was just after the the bubble burst uh, from the the dot com boom uh, in 2001 that we last saw that kind of performance from markets. So your markets are having to contend with a world in which interest rates are going to be higher. The central banks are not going to be bailing them out, and at the same time, they know that growth and profits and earnings are going to be weaker. So that's a, a really difficult combination for equities and, and a lot of risky assets. And we've seen them come under pressure as a result. For the moment, despite what's happening, central banks seem hell-bent on controlling inflation by raising interest rates. So in the final part of the show, we'll look at how far investors think interest rates will rise, whether they might be right or wrong, and the probability of a recession. So in the US now, markets are pricing in interest rates going to about 3% by the end of this year, and then a little bit higher, sort of towards 35 by the middle of next year. In the UK, they're pricing in uh, interest rates going up to about um, uh, 2% by the end of this year, and a little bit higher again into 2023. So, you know, policy tightening is very much being priced in by the markets. Wade says he agrees broadly with the market in the US because the Fed won't see enough evidence of improvement in terms of inflation coming down and growth slowing to actually pull them back from their tightening strategy. So the way I see it is that they raise rates fairly briskly, um, you know, in the US up to 3% by the end of the year. But going into 2023, there will be more evidence of a slowdown. But in the UK, Wade sees rates slightly below market expectations. The UK is a little bit behind the US. So I think, you know, in the, in the UK, we, we could see interest rates rising to two, maybe just above two percent. But again, they would probably stop. And that means that our interest rate forecasts looking out over the next 12 months uh, are a little bit below what the market's expecting, um, because we do think that um, there will be other factors, such as the fiscal policy that I mentioned in the UK, which will be helping the bank to slow down the economy means they don't have to raise rates quite as much as many people think. But does that mean a global recession? Global recession? Um, I, I think the, the probability of that is quite high. I mean, it's probably of the order of 25%. Um, probably just worth saying a little bit more about what's behind that, because different regions have got different risks. I mean, everybody's got a bit of an inflation risk, or particularly the US and Europe not so much China, but China has a big problem with zero COVID policy um, because it's clearly had to shut down a lot of the economy in order to implement that policy. Shanghai has been at a standstill for six weeks with more and more fences going up and police checkpoints in the street. Over in China, the Premier Li Keqiang is um, issuing his third warning in less than a week about risks to economic growth. This suggests more concern about the outlook as widespread COVID lockdown disrupt production and spending. A lockdown in more China's most important cities, it contributes like almost 4% of GDP to China. If China has a lockdown, what does it mean for the rest of the country? That's a big question for a lot of people right now, trying to figure out how it's going to impact the global economy. Uh, Our assumption is that they can emerge from that later on in the year. Um, They have succeeded, I think, in in bringing COVID under control, but they are still putting in place, you know, lots of testing stations and lots of restrictions. People are now 
only just beginning to get um, passes to be allowed out of their homes in places like Shanghai. So still quite a way to go. But, you know, I do think that they, they can overcome that. But in the meantime, activity is very, very weak. So, you know, China is not really contributing to, to the global growth at the moment. Um, Europe, the, the question there, as well as bringing inflation under control, is what to do about Russian energy. What future for Europe without energy independence, with prices at the pump surging and the showdown looming with major gas supplier Russia? Because you know, today this debate about the Russian gas, do we keep it, don't we keep it? It's just pushing every day the price up. But the consequence of all that is that clearly the gas price in Europe will be higher than it was. So the $5 that we experience, or the free $5, I think game is over. So there's been talk of an oil embargo for the last few weeks, and I think they will gradually introduce one, but not very quickly. Um, but as they do so, that puts a lot of pressure on European industry um, and, and European households, because you know parts of Europe are very dependent on Russian energy. So, you know, um, Germany and Italy, for example, get a quarter of their energy from Russia. So. Um, you know, that again could cause quite a sharp slowdown in economic activity. So, you know, all these things together, you know, if we got some sort of synchronized slowdown, it wouldn't be that surprising because of these different policies. And you could you could easily see a, a, a hard landing or even a global recession coming about. Global recession itself is, I would say, you know, about a 25% probability. And I don't think that would be something that we'd see till sort of the end of this year or early next year. While investors expect rates to rise, are they starting to price in a recession? No, I don't think they are. I mean, I think they, they have started to to think pretty seriously about it, though. And you, that's you know why you've seen that weakness in equities and, and, and parts of the credit markets as well. There is a concern out there. And, you know, so, you know, the probability that markets are putting on recession, I think, has has risen quite significantly. But if we do get one then, um, yeah, there could still be more weakness to come. There's been 17 bear or near bear markets since World War II. The average drop was nearly 30% and lasted nearly a full year, according to LPL Financial. Should the economy be in a recession, those bear markets get worse, down nearly 35% on average and lasting nearly 15 months. Going back more than 50 years shows that only once was there a bear market without a recession that lost more than 20%, and that was during the crash of 1987. But should the economy avoid a recession, the bear market bottoms at around 24% and lasts just over seven months on average. What's always difficult is knowing, you know, where will the big sort of casualties be from a recession? So, you know, that's when you find out, you know, who's been over leveraged, uh, overexposed, you know, their, their business is perhaps not as resilient as they thought it would be. And that's when you start to get defaults, you know, as, as companies go into losses and find that they can't pay their debts. So, you know, that, those are the sort of areas. So we need to, the market would need to get more of a handle on that, um, I think, before it could, you know, begin to get confident again. And then the other thing the market w would always do, I mean, the market, once you get into recession, it's usually by that point, the market's kind of caught up and it starts to think about the next stage. So or the market will be looking for the Fed or the Bank of England or the ECB to say, OK, we've raised rates enough and, and the next move will be down.
Here's what else investors are talking about. We urgently need to transform our economy to avoid the most catastrophic effects of climate change on people and the planet and adapt to future temperature rises, which is why Schroders has backed independent calls for oil giants to set climate transition targets and reduce emissions. You can read the full article, Shell, Chevron, ExxonMobil, how we're voting at oil and gas AGMs at schroders.com forward slash insights, where you can read, watch and listen to much, much more. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders Podcast at schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. Cheers.